0: Here's the thing, though. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing, Though. My name is Saliha, and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going?
1: Um, It's okay. I feel like my week has been subpar. I've been sick, ill. I had to get my first COVID test, which I guess I'm lucky to, for it to only be my first, but it definitely wasn't pleasant. I'm sure you can speak. Upon that.
0: Yeah, I got COVID tested like in the very early days because I got really sick during the time that COVID kind of was becoming a thing here. And it was fucking horrific. It was, mind you, I was also just like coughing and really sick and like really unwell. And then when he shoved like, I don't even, the proby little like, I don't even know. The swab? The swab, yes up my nose like I just started choking and it felt like my brain was getting stabbed and I also couldn't breathe because everything was like congested and swollen um so I was literally like choking (laughs) it was just fucked up it took me like half an hour to actually recover but then I went to get a COVID test like just before Christmas recently um just like for peace of mind. And it was fine. Like it was uncomfortable, but it was fine. And I could do it again like quite easily. So I just feel like maybe they're a bit gentler now. And maybe they've like nailed the technique a little bit better now. But when I first went, it was fucking bad. And he was up there for a long time as well.
1: Yeah, mine was pretty swift. She just sort of went in and out. It wasn't too bad.
0: Yeah, and same for the when I went most recently. Like it was fine. The guy was really nice. And, and like it was just... A far gentler experience, so I'm thinking it's like not me. They've actually just they're slightly less invasive about it now and slightly less aggressive. Maybe the tests are better now mm. and they can pick it up without all the like brain prodding. But
1: <laughs> yeah, I, my my brain felt untouched, so it wasn't too bad. But anyways, how has your week been?
0: Um, my week's been alright. Just been like working a lot, to be honest, just like the usual. It was Valentine's Day on Sunday, but Mitch was sick, so. Sorry. Yeah, we didn't do shit. <laughs> I watched Bridgerton. That's what I did, uh, which I have some thoughts, feelings, emotions on, which we're going to talk about later today. Um, But, yeah, there's also – I've got some follow-up, actually, for you, Mitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one – well, I'll go into, like, the newsy ones a bit first because, obviously, we've kind of been talking about Britney. Uh, we did a whole episode on her. We talked about it last week. I'm going to talk about it really quickly now. Um. Britney just had, like, a minor win in her court case, so her father is no longer sole conservator, uh, which I think people are getting slightly overexcited about because, like, this is, like, a very small step. Like, he's still... They seem to think he's not a conservator at all. He is. There's now a co-conservator as well. Like, he just lost his bid to become the only conservator, which he wasn't anyway. Like, they did have co-conservators before. He tried to upend that. He failed. So it's not like a huge change has happened. It's definitely, like, a small step to, like, a solution. It's definitely, like, a small win for Britney. But I feel like a lot of people just think, oh, Britney's free now. And it's like, no, he's still the conservator. Just not, like, the sole one. Let's not get overexcited, guys. Um,
1: And, yeah, I mean, it's still great news. But it also, it just seems like for anything to get done, like, a documentary has to be made.
0: <laughs> I know. For anything, for
1: any justice to occur...
0: Well, speaking of that, funny you should mention the documentary because apparently Netflix is now going to release their own spicy Britney documentary. And I'm just like, okay, where do we draw the line between like, you know, doing it for the greater good and then just like profiting off of Britney's situation? Like, I don't know.
1: It's the 2000s all over again.
0: I know. It's just instead of profiting off her like breakup and her sanity stuff, now they're profiting off her conservatorship. I don't know. Look, that is pretty cynical of me to be fair because a follower reached out to me on Instagram and said that actually there were four documentaries that were being made at the same time and the New York Times one was just the first one to get a green light. So it's not like the New York Times is this noble thing and now everybody's copying them and profiting off it. I was like, okay, fair. But also like now the New York Times one is out – How many fucking more Britney documentaries are we gonna get? I do feel like it's the media jumping on this, and like it's that fake woke progressive vibe where they're just like, "Oh my god, see, we care about Britney," but really, it is still doing the exact same thing the tabloids did, just from the other end of the political spectrum.
1: I mean, they'll make him for as long as we'll watch him.
0: Yeah, and I'll fuck, and I will watch it. So, (laughs) so maybe I should just shut up. (laughs) Um, but. Again, like just a slight going off of Britney's court case thing, uh, Justin Timberlake, who we talked about in last week's episode uh, when we talked about cancel culture and just like the rampant misogyny and racism in Hollywood, uh, recently came out with an apology to Britney Spears and Janet Jackson because of how he ruined both of their careers in the early two thousands. Just a quick refresher. I mean, he pretty much played the victim in him and Britney's breakup and painted her as this, like, villain that broke his heart and it was a huge part of how the tabloids, like, decimated her. And similarly with Janet Jackson, like, he ripped off a a part of her costuming at the Super Bowl, which, like, showed her boob off to everybody and then she was victim blamed as, like, participating in some lewd act and he pretty much got off scot-free and then also went on to profit off of Janet Jackson's career being destroyed. So this guy's done some fucked up shit. Uh he did an apology and if you like read it, it's very like Yeah, I guess this is a good apology like on paper. Like if you just read it on paper, it's a good apology, but it's also kind of one of those things where it's like, did it take a documentary and like millions of people hating on you for you to apologize for your actions? Like How self-aware is this? It seems like a PR thing to me. I don't know. I'm not buying it. But I'm also incredibly cynical with this whole thing because Justin Timberlake is like a rich white man who has been the star of Hollywood for a very long time. And while he may not have like the deepest grasp of white politics and white supremacy politics, he did at least to some extent understand that he was profiting off the demise of Britney and Janet. And he fueled those flames for his own benefit during the time, so I'm like, mm. he's all like, "Oh, I failed Brittany," and I'm like thinking, "Failing implies that you tried to help her. <laughs> you didn't fail anyone because you never tried to do anything. You just anything.
1: fucked her over. You just
0: fucked her over. There was no failing at doing something good. You just didn't even like. Let's 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 pay attention to the word usage here with like failing and stuff. It's just it's a very disingenuous way of." trying to make it sound like he was ignorant of the situation and made attempts to help her that just didn't go through when in reality he was an active participant in both these women's careers being like fucking decimated and destroyed and he like benefited off it knowingly. Whether or not he understands race politics doesn't really matter. Like he still, to an extent, knew he was fucking bullying these ladies and it was helping him. So yeah, I mean, fuck Justin Timberlake. That's all I have to say on that matter. <laughs> and lastly, on our follow-up, we finally finished Blown Away Season 2. And can I just say, so many of you guys messaged us after our rant last episode, agreeing with us and being like, oh my God, so true. And it was so validating because Mitch and I are just like watching this and we don't really know anybody else that watches Blown Away. So we were just like, wow, this like, is it me or is this racist? And now like so many of you guys are talking about how you found it racist too and you agree and you just like didn't know how to pinpoint the exact part of it that was racist. I even like talked to a customer at work about it just really randomly in my retail job because I was talking about Blown Away. And she was like, I watched that show. So it seems that people are waking up. People think it's racist. And it is now that we finished Blown Away season two. There's like more racist parts of the show, uh, spoiler alert. But there's a Japanese contestant and she talks about uh, like – body shaming in Japanese culture and how she has like a tattoo and she was shamed for it or made to feel ashamed for it by her culture. And then Catherine Gray, the judge who I think is racist, goes on to talk about how oppressed like people of that culture are and how we're so lucky in the West to be, to be free to do whatever we want with our bodies. But, you know, here in this East Asian culture where these women have no freedom, like it was very much that white savior vibe of like, oh, those poor oppressed Japanese women. And I was like, I don't know, man, I, you can... It's one thing to talk about, like, a culture that isn't okay with tattoos. It's another to fully imply that there is no, like, bodily freedom. <laughs> it was a bit cooked. Um, it was a bit racist, again. So, yeah, I was right. From season one, I was right. <laughs> anyway, let's introduce today's topic for this week. Uh, we are going to be talking about colorblind casting and colorblind media in general, How possible is it really to have colorblind media and actually do it well? Can we do it well? Is it possible, or is this all just kind of racist? (laughs) That's our conversation today. So Bridgerton has taken the world by storm, being watched more than eighty-two million accounts in its first month. It is actually the biggest show on Netflix like ever at the moment. A huge part of the reason that Bridgerton has soared to the top of like all these pop culture news cycles is its "Quote unquote colorblind casting." So I had to Google what colorblind casting was because I'm not super familiar with it. But colorblind casting, according to Wikipedia, is the practice of casting without considering the actor's ethnicity, skin color, body shape, sex, and/or gender. It's basically when a character is written like without a race, um, and then whoever fills the role best plays them regardless of the ethnicity. So it's supposed to prioritize like personality and mannerism over race and any other physical uh, features. It's actually, it's it like sounds very romantic. The idea that we can be colorblind and people can just exist outside of their racial dynamics and traumas. But I do wonder, like, if that's even possible. I'm sure many of you have varying levels of disdain to those that say things like, "I don't see color. I'm colorblind. You can be black, white, red, orange, purple, and I won't care." It's something that's recently kind of been seen as really problematic and in fact detrimental to people of color because it refuses to account for the unique experiences and contexts of ethnic people that leave us with the personality, that leave us with the personalities, lives and struggles that have made us who we are today. Like race is a very active informant in the way I view the world. Um, I watched Bridgerton mostly because of the hype. Everyone and their mum was lauding the show as progressive and groundbreaking in the way it allows non-white characters to kind of be at the forefront of its narrative and its hero arcs and its like lead characters. It was supposed to be revolutionary in the way it allowed blackness to exist outside of trauma and find joy. But I think it fell short. Watching it, I was not only disappointed, uh, very disappointed, but at times legitimately uncomfortable and offended. And from a quick Google search, it seems I'm not the only one who felt that way, with some of Bridgerton's main criticisms for its racial representations actually coming from black women themselves. The drama surrounding Bridgerton's casting and racially blind narratives kickstarts a lot of the conversations around colorblindness in stories in general, and if we can ever really pull it off, like, is it possible to pull off colorblindness in a racist society? It reminds me of conversations around the Broadway musical Hamilton and its use of ethnicity and even as random as it may seem, the casting of Black Hermione. I think these are actually all linked very closely when we talk about colorblind casting and there is a lot to dissect with it.
1: Also, you'll just find any excuse to talk about Harry Potter.
0: I know, I know it's so trash that I like Harry Potter when JK Rowling is a transphobe, and this show this book series is littered with like fucked up representations of people. But I will say I'm self-aware. I like Harry Potter, but I know how trash it is. But anyway, there's a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. Before we get into today's topic, I just want to first issue a spoiler alert because obviously we're going to be talking about Bridgerton and everything that happened in it. So if you don't want it spoiled for you, do not listen to this section. Uh, We'll put a note uh, in the description for when we stop talking about it. I also want to issue a content warning. We will be discussing a rape scene um, and we're going to be discussing a bit about abortion as well. So if those things are sensitive topics for you, Uh, Please be safe, please be careful, and please feel free to skip uh, that part of this episode as well. Again, we'll put timings down in the description below if you want to skip it. Stay safe. By now, I imagine most of you have seen Bridgerton. I did an Instagram Live yesterday where it came up and pretty much everybody on it had watched Bridgerton. So I feel like it's a safe bet that everyone's seen it. So we are just going to get into these spoilers. We are just going to talk about it straight away. Um, for those of you who don't know, Bridgerton is a period drama that came out pretty recently. It's one season, 10 episodes, about an hour each episode, uh, based on a book series that I have not read. Um, but basically, the premise of the story is like, it's, an, it's based in a society, kind of like an alternate universe, uh, where like race isn't really an issue. So it's based in 1813 England. And it has, I guess, historical features that are true. So Queen Charlotte, who was the queen at the time in 1813, a queen consulate. She's like the queen in it. It is, I guess, an alternate history, not a revisionist history, an alternate history um, to England. So it exists in a fantasy land where racism is not really an issue, which is a huge part of the reason that people started watching it and that it got so much press attention in the first place because, as we all know, period dramas can and often are very problematic. They're usually rapey and kind of sexist and also just generally don't have any POC in them because there's just this myth that, like, people of colour didn't exist in the 1800s in England, as if, like, we didn't all get shipped there by as slaves, but, you know.
1: And they can also sort of romanticise these oppressive hierarchies of the past.
0: Yeah. It can get very icky very fast with period dramas. Not that I'm hating on period dramas. I do enjoy them, but I'm just saying. There are issues in that genre that happen a lot. Um, but Bridgerton was meant to be different. Uh, the whole premise of the show is actually supposed to be about informed consent, which we'll get to uh, in a second. But I guess the biggest thing in the media about it was the fact that the lead love interest is a black man um, and his story is not supposed to revolve around his blackness, which so often happens uh, with a lot of characters that are people of color. Usually like their racial suffering and trauma is a huge part of who they are, especially with black characters um, as well. It's often in relation to like slavery and other kind of really horrific traumas that come with being black so a lot of people were really excited because they were like yes let me just you know just enjoy this escapist drama that doesn't dehumanize me as a person of color and specifically as a black person however here's the thing though (laughs) I started to watch it and instantly I was presented with several kind of racist stereotypes and negative attributes associated with blackness in this show from the get-go, instantly. And as I was watching it, and it just became more and more pronounced, and I'll give you specifics in a second, I was thinking, how is this supposed to be colourblind and, like, quote-unquote post-racial? This idea that race is not this tension that's happening among slavery and other issues in, like, colonial Britain, you know? But then you start watching, and I'm instantly sceptical, because from the get-go, the two main black characters are both light-skinned, And while there's obviously nothing wrong with being light-skinned, it was interesting that colorism amongst black actors and actresses, particularly actresses, has been a real topical issue lately. Uh, Like, especially in the last couple of years with Zendaya's rise to fame, there's been a lot of conversations around the fact that black fame is often reserved for light-skinned black people. Um, So instantly I was a bit skeptical because I was like, hmm, these two people are leads that are meant to be seen as very attractive And very desirable and they are light-skinned. And you only have to watch a little bit more to see that there is definitely a light versus dark-skinned bias in the show, something that I felt like I also just was really looking for because as, like, somebody who is dark-skinned in my community, like in the Desi community, I am on the darker end of the spectrum. I am very familiar with colorism and the fetishizing of light skin and the idea that light skin and Eurocentric features are, you know, the standard of beauty. So the, I noticed it instantly, and I was like, mm, I don't like this. The more I watched, the more obvious it became. Let's kind of let's let's talk about specific examples of colorism in Bridgerton, and just like racial stereotyping in general. The abusive father of Simon, the love interest, the black lead, is significantly darker skinned than Simon. He is abusive and absent, and it's co- and his like anger, his rage, is contrasted with his saint like wife, who is also black but light skinned like Simon. There is a big contrast with the abusive, absent, angry, almost, and this is a very racist trope that I noticed, almost animalistic in rage, is um, as, as, as how it was portrayed, honestly, which is just shocking saying it out loud, to be honest, compared to like his lovely, kind, sweet, dainty, light-skinned, petite wife and his smart, handsome, clever, hard-working, desirable, light-skinned son. It was very strange and it also played on the stereotype of like an absent black father or like a black father abandoning his child. I was just like, "Mm, what the fuck? And then you keep watching and there are obviously black characters in the background, which is not a problem, but all the servants, I'm literally not joking, every single servant or housekeeping staff that was black was very dark skinned in stark contrast to all the black characters in ruling class that were on the lighter end of the spectrum. The queen is biracial, so she's pale. Um, well, canonically biracial. I'm not sure if the actress is biracial, but canonically she's biracial and she's like light-skinned for a black person. And there's just a stark contrast of her surrounded by all her black like handmaidens and black servants that are much darker-skinned than her. And then there's also like the working-class black best friend of Simon our light-skinned lead who serves as nothing but to be the sassy black male best friend like he just serves truth he just lives truth he's just a hard worker he's a boxer like there's definitely a contrast of working class struggling with money having to make ends meet and being dark-skinned and then being desirable being rich being successful and being light skinned let's talk about Simon the male lead super attractive, total hottie, whatever, uh, which is just eyeing me over there. He's hot. He's supposed to be hot. But let's also talk about the fact that he's got this mysterious sexually wanton past, an absent father, childhood trauma, and he's kind of characterised as being a bit primal. Oh, I hate saying that. He is, He is as a black man, as a black man characterised as almost primal in his passion primal in like his sex life, even primal in his temper and rage as he beats the shit out of some creep that tries to, you know, move on in his love, which is, I mean, justifiable. I'd beat up a creep as well. But there is definitely like an element that they're trying to give of him being primal and mysterious. And I don't like it because it's a stereotype we often see with black men in media as being hypersexualized, as, you know, having these quote-unquote primal emotions that they can't, the hyper-emotional, hyper-sexualized, hyper-passionate. Again, it kind of ties into like animalistic or less civilized ways that people have viewed black men historically, and it's racist. And it just seems a little bit tone deaf to like talk about how post-racial or how like colorblind your casting is, and then to place that stereotyping on your male lead amongst all the colorism and everything else, especially when Simon is juxtaposed with innocent milk-white Daphne, who he, you know, quote-unquote, is viewed as corrupting. There is some self-awareness in that element because, like, Daphne has a line where she's all like, I can, like, choose, you know, who I decide to be physical with. You're not corrupting me. But it, I feel like it doesn't do enough. It doesn't do enough to shatter... This idea of corruption, it doesn't do enough to shatter the idea that Simon is this sexual black man that can't stop thinking about Daphne, this innocent little lamb. There are some racial dynamics there, these racial power dynamics I just don't like. And then moving on from Simon, the other black lead is Marina Thompson. So she's a young black woman who comes onto the scene as one of the latest girls available for marriage and she is supposed to be like stunning. You know, she is not quite the competition of Daphne, but if anybody, like Daphne being supposed to be the most beautiful, the incomparable diamond of the season, Marina perhaps challenges that as another equally beautiful and desirable woman. Marina is also light-skinned and that's what I'm saying, where like there is definitely a connection in the show about desirability and being light-skinned. But Marina is then like shown to be like kind of scheming and manipulative in a way that doesn't seem fair to her character. So first of all, Marina is a pregnant teen. She is pregnant outside of wedlock. It has like a huge reveal. It's very dramatic. This is clearly some drama intention because that is very sexually wanton of her to become pregnant in the in 1813 Victorian times, right? Uh, when a woman's virtue is her only value. And... In ways, the show does handle it well. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that inherently because it's true, a lot of women were in that situation during the Victorian era. Teen pregnancy was a thing and it was awful and it ruined your social standing and you were cast out to the street because guess what? Most people were actually still having sex. So while I don't necessarily have a problem with Marina being pregnant and, like, you know, scandalous inherently, there is something about her being the only black woman in this, in this group of marriageable girls. She's the only, like, kind of black woman that we know or have, like, an insight to. She's the black lead. And she instantly is kind of seen as less virtuous because, she, of course, she's the one who got pregnant as the... There's just... Why, why is it the only black character is the one that's pregnant as a teen and has to suffer the humiliation of that? Especially because she is then portrayed as being quite scheming and manipulative because now she needs to trick one of the lovely, kind, sweet, virtuous Bridgerton boys into marrying her so that she can have a father for her child and not to be part of a scandal. So... While we start off seeing her as quite positive in a positive way, she like very quickly is given negative attributes of being scheming, of being manipulative, this seductive. She's literally given an arc where she's supposed to seduce someone. The seductive scheming black woman trying to find a father for her child. What the fuck? (laughs) Like, and then they juxtapose her with the innocent, kind and good white people. But Marina is working class and I still like trick her way. Into finding a father for her unborn child. It is actually like quite racist, especially because she like frequently suffers for it. She is repeatedly humiliated uh, because of her pregnancy. She is repeatedly kind of, we see her crying more than we see her laughing in this show. Like she is suffering because of this. And that's kind of the arc that we get. Like we just get a Marina suffering arc. We just get the black woman who had sex and is now going to suffer the rest of her life for it arc. And I'm just like, "Mm, not cool. And let's not forget Marina, as the only other black lead, also has an absent father. Her father sends her away to settle a debt. He basically sells her off. I'm seeing a pattern here of absent black fathers abandoning their child for money or status. Surely this is racist. Speaking of black suffering... I want to transition to another conversation around consent in Bridgerton. This is where we'll be talking about rape. So for anyone who that is a sensitive topic for or find that difficult to listen to, please switch off now. Um, Again, we'll put the timing in the description below and you can jump back in when we're done with this conversation. Bridgerton, uh, the TV show, is supposed to be progressive not just because of its racial representations, but also because it actually revolves around the idea of informed consent something that I feel like doesn't get talked about a lot in BDL. So that's why we were really excited for it. It was part of the appeal um, because, again, so many period dramas are so rapey, so rapey. Uh, So informed consent is a big deal, right? There is a scene, a very controversial scene, which is supposed to show the importance of informed consent. It's supposed to be revolutionary. But in that scene, there is actually a rape it's very confusing and it's received a lot of criticism and we're kind of going to dive into it now. So in that scene, I guess to give a bit of backstory for, again, those who are listening and haven't watched Bridgerton, Daphne and Simon are the leads. They end up fake dating, falling in love, getting married. But the problem is just before they get married, Simon is all like, I can't have kids with you. I, can't, I cannot give you children. And Daphne is, like, really sad about it, but they get forced into a marriage anyway for other circumstances. So now she's with him and he can't have kids. And she's really devastated about it and he feels really guilty about condemning her to a life without kids because it's all she's ever wanted is to be a mother. Blah, blah, blah. Because we know that he took a vow to his father that he would end the Hastings bloodline because he doesn't want to give his father the satisfaction of the bloodline continuing giving their, given their abusive history, right? Like, as, as a fuck you to his dad, He's like, I am never having children. The lion will die with me. Suffer. He says that to his dad when his dad is on his deathbed. It's a very, like, intense scene. Um, and it shows, like, I guess Simon's... That's his way of regaining control after, like, being abused for all of his life. Um, and that's why he doesn't want to have kids with Daphne. There is, like, some kind of a miscommunication, though, because he keeps saying, I can't have kids with you. And he never tells her that the reason he can't do it is because he is, you know, he's vowed not to. So she assumes that he has a medical condition where he, he, he like, cannot have kids. She thinks it's, like, a fertility thing. Um, and then we, when we, you know, they have, like, lots and lots of sex in the show because it's Bridgerton. Naughty. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like it wasn't as steamy as I thought it was going to be, but that's not the conversation. Um, it's no Game of Thrones. But, um, yeah, anyway, lots and lots of, like, couple honeymoon sex He pulls out every time and Daphne doesn't know anything about sex. She didn't receive any sexual education before she marries him. So everything she's learning about sex is from him, like everything. So she just thinks pulling out is like normal and she doesn't really understand it or like think about it too deeply. But then she starts to connect the dots and realise there is a connection between him pulling out and like not being pregnant and she eventually comes to the truth that he is pulling out to not get her pregnant. Like as in he is it's not that he like isn't capable of having children. He doesn't want them. And she is really upset by this. She feels betrayed. She feels lied to. She thought it was a medical condition. Actually, he's just denying her children is kind of how she views it. She's really devastated. And this is supposed to be the arc about informed consent. She didn't consent to voluntarily not having a child. She consented to a relationship in which he could not have a child. So all this sex, all this love, this relationship no longer feels consensual because it was built on a lie by omission. Um, This is Bridgerton's, you know, really a progressive moment of informed consent. And that could have been really good. I actually think that is a really great example of informed consent. If somebody has been lying to you about something and you've been having sex with them, thinking something else, you can revoke your consent retroactively. Like that is why, why informed consent is a thing. The issue is how the show goes about it. Mind you, this happened, I think, in a worse way in the books, but still, like, it's fucking 2021. The books were written 20 years ago. To kind of prove her point, because she she connects all the dots, it clicks, she realises that she's been lied to or she thinks she's been lied to. So when they're having sex, she climbs on top of him during their sexual escapades, preventing him from pulling out. um, And, you know, just before, like, orgasm, he's kind of like, wait, no, wait. And he's, like, distressed. And then, you know, it happens. Um, and then he is like in shock at the situation and she gets off and immediately starts yelling at him um, and being like, you betrayed me, you lied to me, you said you, you can't have kids, not you won't have kids. She goes on a whole semantic speech about the difference between cannot and will not. And he is shown to be the perpetrator of an issue in this. Sin. Like he is the bad guy. Daphne is completely justified in her rage and in her actions. It's a gotcha moment. It's a full-on gotcha moment where she exposed him. When in reality she raped him, he did not consent to that sex act and he certainly did not consent to being a father. It's actually rape and it's really fucking uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to watch because you're sitting there like, did that just happen? Did she just rape, rape him? Like the show just completely glosses over it. It acts like her behaviour is rightful. that she, she got him back, you know, she, that's her payback for him lying to her, which is just not fucking acceptable at all. And it really brushes away Simon being upset at his consent being revoked. It's seen as him being unreasonable or as him trying to make himself the victim and actually she's the victim. And that actually it's his own fault that this happened. It's pretty fucked up and it totally ignores the optics here as well about like a white woman forcing like, a black man to have a sex act with her, like, given this is set in 1813 at a time where white women regularly got black men lynched for claiming that these men were, like, exerting their sexualities over them. I just feel like there are racial optics here that, like, cannot be ignored. I found an article that articulates this kind of better than I could in the moment because I was just watching it and I was like, something is wrong here about the racial power dynamics and I, qu- I can't quite put my finger on it. There's a Vox article called Bridgerton has a rape scene, but it's not treated like one by Aja Romano. Um, And they say, "'The fact that the rape victim here is both male and a person of colour makes it even more egregious that the show is glossing over the incident. Men are often considered silent victims of sexual assault, and black men in particular are often made scapegoats for sexual violence, which further erases the status of black male victims of sexual assault.' In this context, the show's emphasis on Simon as the instigator of Daphne's choice basically paints him as being responsible for his own rape. This aligns with the broader cultural gaslighting of black men and the shifting of blame away from the white men and women who enact violence upon them. I think that is exactly what it is. Like, in a moment where Daphne exerted... She exerted violence over him. As a white woman, I don't give a shit about how colorblind this show is meant to be. She is a white woman who raped a black guy and then blamed him for it and even this whole lie by omission informed consent thing it seems to act like he purposefully did that and I don't think he did and we never see him actually lie he just keeps saying I can't I can't because to him he made a vow so he he can't break the vow like to him it is a can't it's not a won't for him it is a I can't do it for her that means nothing and if we want to have an argument on that that's one thing but to like include a rape scene to prove Daphne's point Fucked up. Fucked up, especially when he's black and she's white. And I think some people will come in here and be like, but it's set in a world where racism doesn't exist. So, like, all these racial hierarchies, like, you know, we can't be looking at it from the modern-day optics. But that's actually not true, and that's one of the most confusing things about this season. Like, it was marketed as, you know, in an alternate universe, but, like, racism doesn't exist. Like, it's just colorblind. But then we find out very quickly in the show that actually – before Queen Charlotte, who is black, married the king, they were living in a very racist, racially segregated society and her marrying the king as a black woman is what desegregated the society, the society and allowed the upward mobility of black people. And it's how Simon and his father were able to become dukes and it's how a lot of black people be- were able to become royalty was because she handed out dukedoms and property and titles willy-nilly to any black people because that was her way of like spiting the snobby rich white people. So I'm just like, okay, so actually, this society does exist on a backdrop of slavery and racism. And in fact, segregation was part of their lifetime up until very recently. Like within the parents' lifetimes in the show, segregation existed. So now like we don't even have the excuse of saying that it's post-racial because it's not. We don't even have the excuse of saying, oh, it actually exists outside of racism because it doesn't. There is actually conversations in the show about us versus them. You know, black people like us, we have to be more careful. We have to work harder. We have to be better. Like it acknowledges racism. So now all this other stuff that we just talked about, about racial stereotyping, about the Daphne Simon juxtaposition, there's actually no excuse for it anymore. Now it's just racist. And I don't care whether or not it's intentional either. Because I think a lot of people are like, oh, but it wasn't intended to be racist. I'm like, whether or not it's intentional does not matter. Because it's clear that the people in charge of the casting don't give a fuck because it would have been pretty basic research to make sure these things don't happen. They chose light-skinned actors with more Eurocentric features to play desirable black people and then cast darker-skinned people with more black features as either the villains or servants and working class. There are very clear connections here between respectability of certain skin tones and the humanity of various black characters. The inconsistencies in the in-world storytelling when it comes to race are just further making it racist because now you can't even fucking scapegoat. There's a really great article on The Observer uh, by Carolyn Hines called Bridgeton Sees Race Through a Colorist Lens that discusses like, just the inherent racialized nature of a show and the fact that it's impossible for it to not talk about race. She said... Praising a show for casting a black man in a highly coveted position within British aristocracy and ignoring what that means when the show makes clear that the very reason he was able to inherit that position was because the Queen bequeathed it to his father purely because he was black is frankly ridiculous. She goes on to discuss how if slavery exists and if the royalty was built on slavery and they just don't acknowledge any of that and then they give all these negative stereotypes associated with like what, the three or four black characters that we get in the show is actually problematic as fuck. Um, Something I want to bring up is Simon's, the actor for Simon. He says, With colour-conscious casting, I get to exist as a black person in the world. It doesn't mean I'm a slave. It doesn't mean we have to focus on trauma. It just means we get to focus on black joy and humanity. And I just want to ask, where is the black joy and humanity in this TV show? Because Simon gets raped. Okay, and yes, they end up working past it, and so they create, and there's a happy ending. He ends up having a kid or whatever, but like he got raped, and he had a childhood of suffering and abuse. So like for majority of his life, he actually suffers, which we see on screen. So where is his black joy? Where is Marina's black joy? Who like try? She actually tries to force an abortion and fails. She's like broken up with and dumped and humiliated, and she ends up marrying a guy she doesn't want to marry and is really miserable. Because it's the only way she can secure a future for her child. She doesn't get a happy ending this season either. Where is her black joy? What about Queen Charlotte, who is literally royalty, but then we find out that actually her husband is really mentally ill and like delusional and thinks she murdered their child and hates her and tries to attack her. And she is dealing with like all this internalized struggle regarding that. Plus she's constantly humiliated you know, in the column by the gossiper and all, blah, blah, blah. The point is, where is her black joy? She's not happy either. And then there's our other, like, very, very background character, Will, who is the sassy black best friend. It We don't even find out his fate, but it's implied that he's about to get killed or, like, something is about to happen to him, but we just don't see it. And a part of me wonders the re- if, like, the reason they didn't show us that is because then they would be killing off a black character and they don't want to be seen as racist. Because it's like... None of these characters got happy endings. All of them are experiencing suffering. So where is this black joy you speak of? I don't know, man. All the black characters still suffered. And just because it had nothing to do with them being slaves doesn't mean it wasn't still trauma. Going back to what Carolyn Hines said, she also points out that majority of the speaking roles belong to white actors and says that consciously or not, Van Dusen's creative team gave almost all of the black characters with speaking lines, negative attributes and beliefs that place them at odds with the white main characters. Is Bridgerton even that progressive?
1: And one thing that I wanted to add, which is coming from someone who hasn't seen the show, who is, the image in my mind is constructed purely from your analysis here, is that I just find it weird that the show wants to have it both ways. And what I mean by that is it wants to include POC actors in roles where they typically wouldn't be cast, which I think is really interesting. It seems that we as a culture enjoy historical dramas. So I'm not saying that we should police historical dramas, but we should just include the roles up to more types of people. But it also wants to acknowledge the racial implications of having POC actors. And I just don't think you can have it both ways. If you want to include uh, POC actors and acknowledge them as being, black or people of colour, you have to reckon with the racial history and implications of that. So you either have to do it like that, or you have to be completely blind and not acknowledge that they're black, because then you're not reckoning with the histories that it's built upon.
0: That's the confusing thing about Bridgerton, which claims colorblind casting. But if it was really colorblind you wouldn't have, like, tried to talk about race in the show. Like, it's kind of strange that they bring up race, but then they don't acknowledge it. Like, either do it in a true alternate universe where there literally was never racial segregation or anything like that, so it's actually just normal for black people to be around, or if you are going to acknowledge racial segregation, then actually deconstruct racial segregation. You cannot do surface-level race stuff and then just, like, kind of skim over it. Either do nothing or do it well. You can't sit in the middle like that. You cannot have it both ways. And I guess that's what our conversation today is about with colorblind casting. Is it possible? Because Bridgeton wasn't able to do it. They actually they tried, but really like it's not colorblind when you're when you actually talk about race politics but then don't delve into the race politics. Like you cannot have it both ways. This kind of pushes us into a conversation about better forms of colorblind casting. Or well, I guess in a technical sense, it being done better, and I think a really good example of that is Hamilton, because Hamilton casts people of color in almost all of its um, roles in the play by Lin Manuel Miranda. You know, and I think a really notable version is how we have three sisters, and all three of them are different ethnicities. If we're going to talk about who plays them, which is cool. It's like this is like very true colorblind casting, not giving a fuck about the fact that obviously these three sisters would very unlikely be three different races who gives a fuck like it's about the actors it's about the fact that they're talented and interesting and it's subversive and cool and i love that but but hamilton is very controversial in the way it handles race because on the one hand it's progressive in the way it just doesn't give a fuck about who plays characters in its uh, show but on the other hand Does it have an obligation to explore racial relations when it is literally about colonisation and the American Revolution? Like, how responsible is it to have black men play white colonisers who had slaves? This is an ongoing conversation, has been ever since the inception of Hamilton. There is a lot on the topic. But there is another Vox article. I've just been reading a lot of Vox today. (laughs) Uh, Again, by Adria Romano, actually, that I think kind of introduces the topic really well. Uh, It says... Is Hamilton a brilliant, visionary reframing of the narrative of America, a revisionist, apologetic, paying undue worship to the Founding Fathers, or an unholy mix of both? The timing of the film adaptation's arrival helps to renew this argument. Disney Plus is releasing Hamilton just in time for the 4th of July, appropriate for the musical trappings of lavish patriotism. It also drops in concert with the most intense US political protest in recent memory – Protests who spirit the musical by centering actors of colour in a race-bent narrative about revolution also arguably upholds. It's an uncomfortable duality, a tension that the beloved hip-hop musical has courted since day one. Exactly. Very true. I think that is very much the tension that's going on with Hamilton. On the one hand, like it's this really brilliant, interesting, revisionist way of including people of colour in history that forgot them. But on the other hand, that history did forget them, it did erase them and it wasn't an accident. It was on purpose. So, I mean, is it right to be worshipping that history? We briefly discussed this in one of our earlier episodes about tokenism, like in movies. Uh, I think maybe it was our third, second or third episode. But I think it's actually becoming really typical at the moment given Bridgerton's colorblind casting and how colorblind casting is kind of at the forefront of a lot of conversations at the moment. Because Hamilton kind of did it first, right? But despite Hamilton doing it first, there was always a weird kind of haze around the politics of Hamilton itself because it is, it is liberal centrism. It identifies as liberal centrism. It is actually not like a left wing uh, musical. And Lin-Manuel Miranda himself is center left. He's never been radical left. It's sh- I think a lot of people want it to be radical, especially people like us who have radical politics, who enjoy Hamilton. They want it to be radical, especially because it has all these black people in it. And it has all these people that we see as politically progressive in it, that we assume that it is progressive. But I would argue that it's not because it is still a story that like views Hamilton as in the character Hamilton as this idealistic youth who wanted what's best for America. And Hamilton like owned slaves and his in-laws owned slaves. And like he was actually not like he was like. Not pro-slavery, but he also wasn't really an abolitionist either. Like, that really wasn't central to his politics. This guy was, like, more interested in the economy. And so it is awkward and kind of cringe to, like, make him seem like this really progressive left-wing guy when he wasn't. There's been a lot of controversies as well around Hamilton and the way it has approached racial politics outside of the play. Leslie Odom Jr., who is, like, the lead of Hamilton, he is the narrator, Um, he plays Aaron Burr, he is central to the story because he tells the story. And despite, like, being central to the story and telling the story, he actually had to fight to get paid the same as his white counterparts for the Disney film. Um, And it got to the point where literally the day before filming, uh, they were like, come on, man, we're going to start filming tomorrow. And he was like, no, I want to be paid the same. Here's a quote that he said. So I can ask Creative Artists Agency, what does my white counterpart, what does Aaron make to do Grease Live on TV? What does he make to do Grease? This is Hamilton Live, right? So when I found out what he made, Dax, I didn't ask for a penny more. I did not ask for one penny more, but I said, you must pay me exactly what that white boy got to do Grease Live. That's the bottom line. The fact that he had to fight for that, I think was really topical because it's like, this is a story. This is a musical that rose to fame because of its blackness. A huge part of the reason this musical is loved is because of its black actors. It's because of its politics. And not politics in the sense of the story, but politics in the sense that it brought all these black actors and black singers to life. It brought them to the forefront of, narrati- of this narrative. That is what is so loved about Hamilton. So the fucking irony of like this story that is about black nurse and then like the lead black character having to fight for pay equity with a white man fucked up it's also been brought to attention the way the show like actually also had a majority white creative team like its entire team consists of white men the show has never had a black musical director there are moments in its history this is i'm going to read a quote from that vox article There are moments in its history like a memorably uncomfortable scene from Hamilton's popular pre-show street performance series, Ham for Ham. In it, choreographer Andy Blankenbowler performed some of the show's dance moves, which originated from Fred Astaire's blackface imitation of Bojangles, all without any apparent self-reflection beyond noting the layers were, quote, a very deep-seated thing. The delighted white audience looks on, but it's hard not to watch this now and cringe. It encourages us to wonder whether Miranda and his creative team even considered how black history factors into telling Hamilton's story. Hamilton is like caught up in a lot of race controversies. There's another quote by uh, Lyra D. Montero, who is a professor uh, that she wrote an article. Hamilton is both a piece of art that troubles me deeply and a piece of art that sustains me, that gives me life. They argue that while the play is praised for its racially adventurous casting, it in fact uses the talents, buddies and voices of black artists to mask an erasure of people of colour from the actual story of the American Revolution. So I guess what I want to talk, what I want to really drive home with Hamilton is this is another story that profits off of black bodies that uses black bodies in its marketing, and yet those black bodies do not profit off the show. Like the fact that Leslie had to fight so hard for pay equity when he is the reason this show, you know, soared to the heights that it did because he's the black lead and we wanted a black lead. It's telling. It's telling that black people fucking never profit from being black, but everybody else profits off of it. And that's also, I guess, what brings me to the question of colorblind casting, because that was true colorblind casting. But again, it was, they were not able to do it in a way that wasn't racially problematic. They were not able to do it in a way that was void of race politics that ensured that everybody was taken care of from a racial lens that was sensitive to like, black history. They weren't able to do it. It was still controversial. It was still uncomfortable. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was played by David Diggs, a black man. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves and actually had Sally Hemings, his teenage slave that he took with him everywhere and raped and he had six children by her and she was with him until she died. Thomas Jefferson was a white man that had slaves and was a rapist, as many of them were. And it's just uncomfortable for these, like, white rapist colonial men to be played by black men that bring them charisma and personality and charm. There is something icky about it. And it's just that ickiness, I think, is perhaps potentially inherent to colorblind casting. Like, can we do it without it being fucking icky and weird and kind of racist and problematic?
1: Another critic of Hamilton that I want to draw attention to is this great American writer and poet called Ishmael Reed, who wrote a play in 2019 called The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's a very amusing play. It's like A Christmas Carol, where the play's lead character, who is Lin-Manuel Miranda, is visited by the spirits of those he's misrepresented or left out of his musical. Uh, so this includes Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, as well as the black slaves and Native Americans who are notably absent from the production. Uh, and just a little side note. I hadn't heard of Ishmael Reed uh, before this, but I looked him up and had been reading some of his novels and it's really good. So I'd recommend at the moment I'm reading his second novel, uh, Yellow Back Radio, Broken Down. It's a very amusing satire of the American ideology in the American Western. So I would recommend that. Um, anyways. I guess what we need to ask is, why do we have to romanticize these men? Why do these stories of the founding fathers have to be valorized and romanticized in such a way? It's ironic that Hamilton's final song is called Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story, as Lin-Manuel Miranda is apparently not at all interested in telling, truthfully, the story of those marginalized, displaced, and enslaved. Instead, we just smile and reminisce because Hamilton isn't a historical work but it's blatant patriotism.
0: Speaking of that final song, actually just going to jump in for a second. Um, There's a section of it that is sung by Eliza Schuyler, who is Hamilton's wife, and she sings about how she raised funds in DC for the Washington Monument. Actually, I'm going to read you the line. I raised funds in DC for the Washington Monument. I speak out against slavery. Those two lines come right after each other, but... The Washington Monument was literally built by slaves. It was built by slaves, something that the song just doesn't acknowledge at all. And I looked it up, and according to the African-American branch of the Smithsonian site, construction of the Washington Monument began in 1848 with enslaved Africans as laborers, according to several sources. Construction stopped in 1854 due to lack of funds and then resumed from 1877 until its completion in 1888. So she raised those funds. But, like... Are we just not going to acknowledge that the Washington Monument was actually, like, built by slavery? I don't know. It was just one of those things where when I heard this song, I was like, um, what? <laughs> but yeah, sorry, Mitch, go on.
1: I just want to reference another article by Ishmael Reed, a 2015 uh, piece for Cannon Punch magazine titled Hamilton the Musical. Black actors dress up as slave traders and it's not Halloween. Which sort of perfectly summarizes how this use of blind casting is very problematic. He essentially claims that it's sort of fucked up for black actors to uh, encompass the roles of someone who, of people who just wouldn't give a fuck about them. But he doesn't necessarily blame the actors, though he suggests it's ignorant. But it's because that we romanticize and valorize uh, these founding fathers and we don't actually ever, in the schooling system or in the way we view history, we don't ever put a very critical eye upon them. So the article ends like this. So this is a quote. In the heady times during the slave revolt of the 1960s, the rebels boasted about how they were using the enemy's language and how they were stealing his language. Uh, Now things have been turned upside down. Now the masters, the producers of this profit-hungry production, which has already made $30 million, are using the slaves' language, rock and roll, rap and hip-hop, to romanticise the careers of kidnappers and murderers, people who, like Jefferson, beat and fucked as slaves and spied on their fucking. The very clever salesman for this project is Lin-Manuel Miranda. He compares Hamilton, a man who engaged in cruel practices against those who have been kidnapped from their ancestral homes, with that of a slave, Tupac Shakur. He is making profits for his investors with glib appeals such as this one. Reed is ultimately pointing out how Hamilton is further whitewashing and suppressing the true histories of America's past, uh, completely erasing the histories of black suffering and reinforcing a sort of Eurocentric view and a Eurocentric education systems where students are receiving false information about their colonized country's past.
0: Exactly. And that's kind of why I'm just so not sold on the idea of colorblind casting as something that's progressive, because even when done correctly, like in Hamilton, where they just did not give a fuck, like, I wouldn't say it's colorist or, like, there are any kind of preferences for certain races. Like, they just casted whoever. And that is what colorblind casting is. And yet... And yet, there is still so much political tension around this. There is so, there's all this murky, kind of gross politics around it with like whitewashing and white savorism and the obsession of like white colonial history that is very similar to Bridgerton that it's just kind of making me think, oh, I don't know if like it's ever possible to like just ignore race. I don't think it's possible to just ignore race. Like, I don't think you can ever do something that is a genuinely good and progressive and non offensive or problematic piece with like racialized characters who don't have a concept of race it's not fucking possible and it kind of pushes me into this last example that i really want to talk about um of black hermione because i think black hermione really signifies the fact that you cannot just pretend a character's race has no impact on them in recent years, there's become a trend for Harry Potter fans uh, to envision Hermione as black, given the fact that she has frizzy brown hair and the fact that her race and skin tone were never actually like really specified because, of course, we all just assume that anybody who isn't specified as a race is white, uh, white is the default, etc. But if you pair that with the fact that she's supposed to be muggle-born in Harry Potter society, which puts her as like a second-class citizen who experiences constant racism and slurs, well, it's easy to see how a lot of young girls relate to that. Obviously a lot of young black girls will relate to a character that experiences racism and is often like called slurs, you know. I I can see how I can see the connection there. So the spin off play, The Cursed Child <laughs> so bad. I do not recommend. But the spin off play for Harry Potter, The Cursed Child, is set um in, in like Harry Potter's adulthood and in it, Hermione was actually cast as a like by a black woman so a black woman plays Hermione um in the recent Cursed Child play and there's been like drama from racists who are really upset about it and then like progressives who are all like yes black Hermione love this for us love some positive black representation you know love this colorblind casting love the fact that black women can be heroes too etc it was really applauded as this wonderful instance of like representation and colorblind casting um and it was also viewed as like subversive and progressive, especially given like the nature of J.K. Rowling as being like problematic and racist uh, in the way she's written Harry Potter as well. So a lot of people kind of saw it as like a reclaiming of Harry Potter, um, and taking it away from her. Not that she—I mean, she is pro Black Hermione, so I don't really see it as something that bothers her. But anyway, you know, people were generally very happy about Black Hermione, but. Here's the thing, though, again. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. There have been some criticisms around the supposedly colorblind casting of Hermione that I think is really necessary to discuss. A large part of Hermione's side plots um, in, like, the actual Harry Potter books, not in the movies, and a lot of her character development uh, comes from her adamant opposition to elf slavery. So just, like, to give you a little rundown, in the Harry Potter books, house elves, are like, you know, like, Dobby. Dobby is a house elf, for those of you... Who, I imagine everybody knows who Dobby is. Uh, But anyway, house elves, like, do all the cooking and the cleaning and whatever for rich families. They're basically, like, servants. Um, And also for big institutions like Hogwarts, which employs a lot of house elves. Uh, And apparently they love this. They love, like, being slaves because they're not paid. Like, this is just their full-time thing that they do, and they're not paid or anything. They just exist to serve wizard masters in true J.K. Rowling and sensitivity. Hermione wants to free the elves. She's really horrified about the fact that they're slaves. She goes through a whole thing where she wants to start up a team to, like, free them, and, like, she tries to convince them that their labor is being exploited and blah, blah, blah. She gets really political and involved, Um, and she is ridiculed for it. She is seen as, like, an SJW, like, clearly finding problems where there aren't any. It's seen as, like, white saviorism. And I just want to bring this up because if Hermione was black all along, then we need to dissect the fact that she was a little black girl vehemently opposed to elf slavery and was mocked and ridiculed by the white people in the book for that. Is that not fucked up? Like, are the optics of this not unacceptable? Initially, you know, if it's meant to be white slaverism, it kind of makes sense why people thought Hermione was, like, being ridiculous. Even then, I mean, all questionable because are we really going to just accept the fact that elf slavery is a thing? But whatever. Canonically, in the book, in the Harry Potter world, you know, we were able to let it go and not see this thing as a huge deal because Hermione was being a white savior and trying to, like, convince or liberate a group of oppressed beings that they are actually oppressed and need her help to change their circumstance when they don't want it. Now, though, the situation is completely different because Hermione is black. And Hermione being black means she wasn't a white saviour, but a black girl recognising her own oppression in the elves and being sickened by slavery and the sycophantic, mammy-like behaviour of an oppressed group. Rowling doesn't actually acknowledge the racial history necessary for good representation, and it's why the colourblind casting of Hermione cannot possibly be void of politics. And there is no such thing as just colourblind casting void of politics because race will always inform Your experience of the world when you exist in a racist society the trials of blackness in a white supremacist society inform a lot of black experiences the same way being brown informs a lot of my experiences i would not be the person i am today without those racial traumas i'm not saying they're good or i'm glad that they gave me a character development but like the way i view the world the way i interact with people the way i perceive the society around me is inherently tied to my position as a woman of color in australia They are not mutually exclusive. There is no vacuum. And so I asked the question, can colorblindness media exist in a world that is built on racism and white supremacy when racism and white supremacy is the default? Because who writes these colorblind stories? Is it white writers? Can white people write a colorblind story? Does colorblindness exist? Is color... Is it colorblind or is it just ignorant to the nuances of racial experiences? Are we just trying to convince ourselves that we can exist in a post-racial society? And is that necessary? Because I think race actually brings a lot of like really interesting nuanced perspectives to life that are like necessary for any kind of good media. Colorblindness, I think, is actually kind of racist. I don't think it really exists. Media cannot exist in a racial vacuum. Everything we do and say and experience is informed by race politics and every other politics. Until we fucking abolish white supremacy, until we're actually living in this fictitious post-racial society, there is going to be no such thing as colorblindness in a positive way.
1: Cool. Uh, Just before we get finished up with this episode, we do have a Patreon question this week, and it comes from Katie. And Katie here asks, Hey guys, I've been faced with the same question argument from people about different movements, but particularly when it comes to feminism, and whether the movement should come from a divisive standpoint. For example, whether the language should try to be inclusive so as to not put people off. I don't necessarily agree with that because I think it's too slow and people don't really listen to nice. It just puts a band-aid on things and panders to fragility. However, we'd like to know what you guys thought about this. Maybe you can help me with some words or arguments to that effect. I don't want to be nice so that people take things seriously. It's their responsibility to just do it. Lots of love.
0: Oh, Lots of love to you too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I feel like you guys all know what I think of people who try to call like angry feminists or anti-racist voices divisive. You got, I feel like everybody knows that I have a real issue with that. That is some, like, white feminist or, like, racist shit, right? It's often used by white feminists quite often to silence, like, angry women of colour. Ruby Hamad talks about it in her book, White Tears, Brown Scars, which you should read, I think, if you want to get into the politics of divisive, quote-unquote, feminism, But all the stuff about not being divisive, about being polite, about being nice, it's just, it's a gaslighting technique. It's used and weaponized predominantly against women of color, but, you know, against everyone, um, to, like, impede change. It's a way for political gatekeepers to remind you of your place and to muzzle your politics to maintain their power. It's always people in power saying shit like that in order to, like, suppress activism. Uh, I really want to recommend Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. Uh, both the introduction and the last chapter, which is titled Allies, Anger and Accomplices, really kind of get into this idea of being a divisive feminist, of being like rude or mean or an asshole, uh, while like other feminists, you know, clutch their pearls. And I'm like, oh, you don't have to be so mean. Like it, it does get into that. And I've got um, a little excerpt for you from page 254, uh, which I think might help you a little bit in terms of arming you and having a comeback to people who call you divisive. It says, politeness as filtered through fragility and supremacy isn't about manners, it's about a methodology of controlling the conversation. Polite white people who respond to calls for respect for getting boots off necks with demand for decorum, aren't interested in resistance or disruption. They are interested in control. They want the polite facade instead of disruption. They are obstacles to freedom who feel no remorse, who provide no valuable insight because ultimately they are content to get in the way. They can prevent any real progress from occurring while they reap the benefits of straddling white supremacy and being woke at the same time. And I think that's very true. Nobody ever got anywhere being nice. When people tell you to be more polite with your activism, to not be so abrasive, to not be so quote-unquote divisive, what they're really saying is tone it down because now you're starting to threaten my seat of power. Like I want to be progressive and woke but not to this extent because now I will lose my privileges. It's wanting to be in the middle ground of having privilege but still being seen as liberal and progressive by like the women around you or the women of colour around you in particular. I think you just gotta remember, no one ever got anywhere being nice. Women's rights, gay rights, black rights, trans rights, none of these have been won or are being won still by kindness, by using our pleases and thank yous. Radical change comes from radical action, it comes from dissent, it comes from protesting, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Like who gives a fuck about politeness when lives are at stake? And I think that's what you gotta make a point of. I guess if I had to give you advice in how to like talk to people who call you um, divisive or who want you to be polite, my advice would be to arm yourself with the information and dialogue necessary to be able to call out that stuff in the moment as like a muzzling technique. Like you need to be able to tell them that they're muzzling you and you need to be able to do it in a way that makes them feel fucking insecure in their allyship. Honestly, that's what I do. Like make them feel like a bad ally because they are being one. If somebody accuses you of being divisive and you're just like actually standing up for marginalized groups, have an arsenal of information and resources to be able to kind of quickly resort to so that you can say, actually, you calling me divisive is typical of behaviour by XYZ designed to silence people, as quoted by, you know, XYZ like uh, academic, particularly cite like black and ethnic academics. Legitimise yourself. I don't think we should have to source ourselves like that every second of every day, but I found it's the easiest way to get a point across, because people who call you divisive are also usually part of like respectability politics, and they're usually in that whole, like let's be polite, let's just like have our facts, so come in with your facts.
1: Yeah, I guess when I think of this issue, I think of it in terms of, of happiness, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, it seems to me that the ideology of our bourgeois society is somewhat utilitarian when it comes to happiness. Everything is about maximizing happiness, and it becomes the basis of our, well, our consumeristic culture. Every object, product, idea, or way of doing things becomes attached to a type of happiness value. And what happens with that is that eventually mainstream discourse becomes mostly aggressive towards anything which is not conducive to happiness, and that includes politics. And as Katie has seen firsthand, is that ways of being that threatens everybody's general happiness is attacked. And I get this idea from Sarah Ahmed, who uh, we talk about on episode three and her book, The Promise of Happiness, because she ultimately talks about how being a feminist, being anti-racist is in a way being a bit of a killjoy, being someone that goes into spaces where people, you know, are are blind to the truths and are just sort of happy with their life and making people unhappy with the shattering knowledge of sexism and racism in our world in that book the promise of happiness she has three chapters that of the feminist killjoy the unhappy queer and the melancholy migrant it seems that certain types of people have unhappiness inherently associated with them and in that book she talks about what it means to be a killjoy to be unpleasant To be outwardly unhappy in bourgeois spaces that prioritize happiness over everything else. And then she talks about the inherent sadness there is in becoming aware of gender and of race and frames the consciousness of sexism and racism as shattering. So uh, when it comes to advice, I feel like Sliha summed it up pretty well. But it's also just being confident in the fact that you're allowed to be unhappy and you're allowed to be divisive and you don't need to pander to people's happiness.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's not your job to make people comfortable. It's not your job to sacrifice your own politics for the sake of them not feeling threatened or called out or discomforted.
1: And if anything, you're being more optimistic because you believe in more significant change.
0: Yeah, that's a really nice way to end it. And I actually have read that somewhere about like people fighting for radical change, like socialists and stuff. Um, they are like the most optimistic people because we actually believe that we can fix these messed up issues. Like we actually believe that there are answers to sexism and misogyny and racism, which is optimistic. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe a part of it is definitely not viewing ourselves as-, as divisive, but as fighting the good fight.
1: Well, anyways, thank you for the question, Katie. We love hearing from you. So anyways, we just want to say that this episode is sponsored by you, our listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank Everett, Pia, Beck, Naya, Rachelle, Lucia, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you so much.
0: If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.com forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode.
1: And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, music and books.
0: Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there.
1: See ya. Bye. Bye.